Um, all right, so should we rock? Yeah, let's rock. Yes. <laughs> that was enthusiastic as could be. <laughs> Bob, is that the is that the gesture for the next um, editorial meeting? First salute, then raise the roof. Now we're rocking. Yeah, now we're rocking. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Lauren Del Cello, Managing Editor for WQP. I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. And I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And in this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we will discuss the latest coronavirus relief package, the American Rescue Plan, and its impact on the water industry. We'll also dig into the results of the American Society of Civil Engineers 2021 Infrastructure Report Card as pertains to water infrastructure. Finally, our interview this month is with Rich Raz Razgatis, co-founder and CEO for Flow Water. Katie spoke with Raz about microplastics and how the issue impacts all aspects of the water industry from consumer to municipality workers. Now on to a little bit of news today. Um, first, I just wanted to give a little shout out that as we're recording this episode today, it happens to be World Plumbing Day, and World Water Day is going to be just around the quarter. So it's a water-filled month, and if you work in the plumbing or sanitation sphere, which many of our listeners do, we celebrate you and thank you for all your hard work. Um, now on to the first news item today, which is the American Rescue Plan, the new uh, COVID relief package. So on May 10th, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to approve the American Rescue Plan, a $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. And as we're recording this podcast episode, which I mentioned is World Plumbing Day, March 11th, U.S. President Joe Biden is expected to sign the bill March 12th. This is according to the Washington Post. The long debated bill covers a wide range of initiatives, including additional stimulus checks, unemployment assistance, additional funding to the Paycheck Protection Program for small businesses, as well as funding for increased COVID-19 vaccine development and distribution, and much, much more. So how does this all impact the water industry? Well, first, the aforementioned Paycheck Protection Program funding is aimed at helping small businesses like some water treatment dealerships. The bill also contains $500 million in assistance for low-income water customers and support for water and sewer investments. And this is according to a joint press release issued by the National Association of Clean Water Agencies and the Association of Metropolitan Water Agencies. The bill also allocates $350 billion through the coronavirus state and local fiscal recovery funds for water and sewer infrastructure. The funds are intended to target COVID-19 expenses, lost revenue, or necessary investments, according to the release. So a real quick summary of all that, because there's a lot involved in this package, is that water investment and affordability are starting to see a little bit of a spotlight here. And we're certainly curious to see what the future holds on this subject, as this is just hopefully the beginning. Um, briefly wanted to open up the floor to any discussion on this. We do have a jam-packed episode today, so we plan on kind of flying through. Yeah, I'll, I'll note one thing first. And that is, I think that seeing this money being included there 
I, I think there may be some impacts that this will play when they go to do an infrastructure bill. Um, this will give an indication of like how much should be allocated. It could ultimately result in less support in an infrastructure bill because you already received support over here or something like that. I could see that argument being made because um, it is Congress after all. But um, I think this sets some a, a level of expectation of kind of what's next for infrastructure, especially for water infrastructure and funding through the federal government. And it's interesting, too, when you think about the ASCE infrastructure report card, which we're going to be talking about later in this episode as well, which talks about a funding gap. Um, so more on that later, but certainly some dovetails there. Um, but Bob, you had a quick update for us first on some other national issues. Yeah, I wanted to do, we've been talking about this in the last couple of episodes, the lead and copper rule revision. There is a quick update that we wanted to provide to you today because things are moving finally on that. The initial effective date was March 16th. It no longer is that. Uh, the EPA sent two action notices that were posted on March 5th and made public on March 10th. These extended the published date in the Federal Register to June 17th, 2021 for the first notice, and the second notice extended the effective date of the rule to December 16th. These proposed extensions are to allow for a new public comment period before the June 17th uh, published date and to provide time for utilities to readjust to any potential changes that could arise from that comment period. I've spoken to some industry experts on this and the expectation from myself as well as others that I've spoken with is that the rule will just get more strict, not more lax. Regardless, utilities can prepare for some of the broad strokes involved, especially creating a lead service line replacement program. So I encourage everyone to, uh, who this impacts, especially utilities, to visit the WWD website for some resources that we have available. We'll have some. We'll have a link in uh, the description for the show notes for this episode as well to, to direct you there. But that's my quick update on that. I, I wanted to really get into the report card, though, because there's uh, a lot to dissect in there, and we have some limited time. So first things first. Um, with the uh, American Society of Civil Engineers infrastructure report card that was released on March 3rd. And there are two scores in, in, in water that I'll be talking about and the stormwater one Katie will be talking about. First of all, drinking water infrastructure improved from a D in 2017 to a C minus in 2021. The association attributed this to improvements in asset management programs that identify, that identify equipment for replacement and repair and adjusting for aging infrastructure and solving problems related to that. For wastewater, the score remained at a D plus, and one of the big metrics that the association referenced is how much capacity plants are currently using. So they found that 15% of the 16,000 wastewater plants in the US have met or exceeded their capacity, and that the rest operate at an average capacity of 81%. So to improve these scores, the ASCE recognized that funding mechanisms for drinking water are not adequate and more needs to be done in this area to push that score up. And then for wastewater, ASCE stressed the importance of asset management plans for wastewater utilities to raise that score. So we see that the drinking water score was a D and it became an AC minus because of those asset management plans. So it seems they're applying that same logic to the wastewater side to see if that can bump that score up too. Uh, Katie, I'll throw it over to you for stormwater. Yeah, so this was the first year that stormwater was included on the report card, and for its first grade, it got a D. <laughs> so according to ASCE's stormwater report that was included in the report card, it said 
With few dedicated funding sources, complicated governance and ownership structures, expansive networks of aging assets, increasingly stringent water quality regulations, and concerning climate change projections, the expected performance of stormwater systems is declining. Um, they also, like wastewater, mentioned the need for funding and also in their report nodded to WEF's National MS4 Needs Assessment Survey, of which the results were released in February, and that survey found that the sector's annual funding gap is estimated, estimated to be $8.5 billion. That number is a 10% increase over the funding gap found in the West 2018 survey. Um, so I am eager to see, you know, what happens in the next, you know, few years before ACE our ASCE's next report card. But I also wanted to mention that overall, the US infrastructure received a grade of a C minus, which um, is the first time in 20 years the country has received a grade in this range. Um, so I guess that is a is a little positive moment from the report card. <laughs> Quick little comment from me on, on that, because I know you guys are <clears throat> way more versed in this than I was as you, you sat in on the presentations for this, but that is a huge funding gap, A, with a little positivity though that maybe we're moving in a right direction with a slight minor improvement to the national score and the drinking water score in general. And C, the last thing I wanted to mention is in terms of the drinking water report, um, regarding action items, the association mentioned that technologies like sensors and smart water quality monitoring could play a big role as well in improving these conditions. So I just thought that was really interesting since smart water is something we kind of revisit regularly on this show and kind of its intersections between the different facets of the industry. Yeah, and to your point, um, when you think about asset management plans, tying those asset management plans to those digital frameworks and those digital solutions is actually a lot of the messaging that we're hearing right now. So the drinking water score increased because of those robust asset management plans. And so taking that next step of digitizing them, getting um, more sensors in your, in your network, getting a better understanding of how flow flow is making its way through, getting a better understanding of the water quality at influent and effluent, all of those things aid in that asset management ele element. And when you have more data to understand predictive maintenance, it makes your system overall better. So certainly 100%, I, I see that there's a real connection and through line when you're talking about asset management and those digital platforms, because I see that connection constantly. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also, even though these different sections are broken up between wastewater, stormwater, and drinking water, there's connections we're seeing between all of them, right? There's overlap in these issues and how to solve them. Yeah, I'm sure that Katie can talk about this too, of just sewer over overflows in general. For wastewater, it's certainly a problem, but that's also a ma massive part of the problems that stormwater runs into. A lot of failing stormwater management systems are because of overflows. So solving that problem and getting those smart systems in place, getting those level sensors and whatnot can solve a lot of that stuff. But Katie, do you have anything more that you, that you kind of recognize in that front? Um, the other thing I was going to mention is during the live um, reporting of the ASE report card, they said that, you know, at this point, um, more than 40 states, so they're saying that stormwater utilities are on the rise, which is good to see, and that more than 40 states have at least one right now, which is great to see. Um, so, yeah, I think that, like Lauren said, it's all connected, and I think that 
the it's good now that the report card has stormwater so we can kind of keep track of of how things are going and see if you know the rest of the states that can include you know stormwater utilities going forward yeah i thought that was a really interesting bullet point the that 40 states have at least one stormwater utility what are the 10 states without it <laughs> don't they deal with stormwater too <laughs> right right yeah well you know stormwater management is relatively a little bit of a a baby yeah and i think a step in that is was having on the report card this year so um it is it is a baby or a teenager as some other people have called it so <laughs> it has, oh it that's funny <laughs> Uh, alrighty. Um, Katie, want to move us into our interview now? I know you had a great conversation with Raz going. Yeah. So like Lauren said earlier, I interviewed Rich Raz Razgatis this month. He is the co-founder and CEO of Flow Water. And we talked about all things microplastics. Um, so without further ado, here is that interview. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Talking Underwater. Today, I am joined by Rich Raz Razgatis, co-founder and CEO of Flow Water, a company aiming to provide premium water to the world while eliminating plastic water bottle waste. Today, we're going to talk about microplastics and how they affect all sectors of the water industry. So, Rich, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Likewise, Katie. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So, just to get started, let's kind of start at the very basic level. Can you give our audience an overview of what microplastics are? Yeah, micro, very simply stated, microplastics are plastics that are generally regarded at, or, or generally defined as less than five millimeters uh, in diameter. So, you know, plastic, a microplastic would be something that is roughly the size or smaller than your thumbnail that enters the environment. And the way that that happens, generally speaking, is that uh, plastics don't biodegrade, they often photodegrade. So for example, when plastic makes its way into water, uh, it degrades through um, the sunlight and the sun rays, and it turns into two pieces, four, eight, six, uh, excuse me, four, eight, uh, 16, 32, 64, and to the point at which it's the very, very small, even nano particulates of plastics. Uh, that can enter our food systems and our waterway and whatnot, but we'll talk more about that later, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And my next question is, you know, what are some of the biggest threats that and challenges that my, microplastics pose to both humans and the environment? Well, a lot of it's unknown. I mean, I think it's a really good question about, okay, well, what does that mean if you are ingesting microplastics? And so, uh, let me kind of back into the answer on um, a little bit of speculation, a little bit of concern that is based on primary and secondary data that's out there, and then a little bit of what is a trend that simply has really um, dangerous directional indicators that I feel and many feel we can't wait until it becomes a crisis to address it. And so, uh, a few statistics about my about. Let's start with plastics first. So if you look at the number of chemical compounds that are used to make cigarettes, it's around 6,000. If you look at the number of chemical compounds that are used to make um, plastics and, and, and PET in particular, it's around 10,000 chemicals. So, you know, some chemicals aren't bad, but some chemicals are very bad for the endocrine system or you know, any number of, of, of you know, human biome functions or simply environmental functions and so uh, a lot of times you'll you know if you've listened to anything that i've shared in the past and throughout the course of this podcast i'll probably 
reference uh, many times kind of big bottled water and, and, and plastics very much like a new environmental cigarette. I mean, this is kind of the 2021, 20, 2022 uh, cigarette of the 1980s and 90s. And so what has happened is that we have consumed so much in the way of plastics over the last 30, 40, 50 years. And a lot of that is single use plastic water bottles. Uh, hundreds of billions into the environment every year worldwide that end up, uh, the majority of which end up getting thrown into oceans, lakes, rivers, and landfills, that we are now literally drinking our bottled water. So the average American drinks or eats around one credit card worth of plastic every two weeks. So there's this research study that done out of uh, uh, SUNY in the East Coast, and they identified, perhaps not surprisingly to many, that in over 90% of the bottled water samples, uh, those contained over 300 microparticulates of plastic per liter of water. What did surprise a lot of people is that they found almost the exact same results in tap water. They found that uh, SUNY, the same SUNY study found that over 90% of tap water samples had over 300 microplastics per liter of water. So now it's a little bit like when you were whether you're drinking bottled water or not, you are literally drinking bottled water. Uh, and in fact, just you know, today, uh, uh, this morning, I was reading an article on uh, kind of an agricultural uh, component of the issue of microplastics in soil. And there are as many as 300,000 tons of microplastics that enter agricultural soils in North America every year. So what does this do? Well, we don't really know. You know, well, we, we don't really know. We don't, we do know that plastics have endocrine disruptors that are in it. And we do know that, um, you know, in the same way that one cigarette really isn't any, there's no, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing harmful for you about one cigarette. I mean, it might make you cough a little bit, but it's not going to affect the course of your life. 10,000 cigarettes, you're stuck in, you know, you're going to start mm-hmm. to feel not so great. 100,000 100, cigarettes. So, there ends up being this kind of cumulative dose response to things that should not be a part of um, kind of the human biome and, 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 and also just the ecological environment. And many of the effects, we just don't know. What we do know is that it can't be good. And that's part of what we're trying to solve for is to move to a world of kind of uncycling where single-use plastics are not needed, uh, especially as it relates to single-use plastic water bottles. Right, right. And um, you know, kind of shifting gear a little bit to, you know, focus on, on the water industry, but how do microplastics impact, you know, all aspects of the water treatment train from stormwater runoff to wastewater treatment to, you know, endpoint quality and, and drinking water? Well, that's another great question. And, uh, you know, there's certainly, there's certainly, you know, when you go through municipal water treatment, and by the way, I, I think municipal water treatment has done a phenomenal job considering what we have thrown at the environment over the last 50 years. Uh, and, you know, we can talk about glyphosate as well as an example of that. And it's kind of a parallel to microplastics in a way and glyphosate is Roundup. But municipal water was never really designed to help um, remove, reduce, uh, eradicate microplastics, just in the same way as it was never designed to be able to solve for Roundup that is making its way into, you know, oceans, lakes, rivers, tributaries that make its way into a municipal water treatment facilities. You know, municipal water was never designed to really solve for that. 
So uh, in some cases, of course, the microplastics, if they're a large enough particulate size, will get caught by uh, a filter and kind of what it does in terms of taxing the municipal uh, and, 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 you know, kind of water making side of things, uh, I'm not as familiar with. What I do know, though, is that municipal water was not designed to filter out and purify out microplastics. And so when you start to get the microplastics that are in the form of, uh, you know, small millimeter size or down to nanoparticulates, those just aren't going to get removed. I mean, uh, you know, if you look at municipal water, what they've done an amazing job of really is being able to get water safely to a consumer or a business or a, a, a place of worship or a school. But they have not been equipped, nor is it, ca is it possible to really equip them in a short period of time for all of the things that we're throwing at the problem. And microplastics are just one of those, but it's a, it's a substantial one, but it's not the only one. So where do you think, you know, regulation of microplastics might go in the future? I know some studies I read have mentioned that people are calling for the phasing out of single-use plastics or for, you know, officials to pass through to responsibility laws. What do you see happening there in regards to regulations on microplastics? Yeah, I, that's, um, that's an interesting subject. I think the best answer is I don't, um, how much regulation will happen, I'm quite uncertain of, but I will, I will speculate a little bit, but then I'll also kind of make a, I will kind of make a, a mission-based plea for anyone that listens and that cares about the environment and that cares about the change that were most of us, I think, can certainly support, and it just became it becomes an element of behaviors, is nothing will change the outcome of uh, our environmental stewardship and our own health than people just taking action and not waiting for regulation. But that being said, regulation does help uh, propel these things and bring them to the forefront. And so I do, you know, and it started first with the single-use plastic bags, and there was there were a lot of bans that were occurring with that, which got temporarily lifted over the last year. But now many of them have uh, uh, been reinstated or are starting to be reinstated or will be reinstated. I do think bottled water will follow suit. There's certain, um, you know, certain municipal areas in the city of San Francisco that were forbidden from selling bottled water starting about two years ago. So it has to be, you know, a certain size or smaller has to be non-PET. I do, I do think we will see some regulations that uh, discourage single-use PET, if not outright ban it. In fact, I gave a TEDx talk once where, you know, one thing that, you know, I, I, I proposed was a, kind of a solution to the problem, which is if we look at treating bottled water the same way that we looked at treating cigarettes and, and using tax implications and consequences to it, to kind of clean up uh, the after effects of tobacco and also bottled water, that would have a material effect on bottled water sales, right? That would be another form of kind of regulation. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a fairly free market, you know, entrepreneur. So I generally like the market to be able to behave the way that kind of best meets the needs of customers. That being said, this microplastics and the single use plastics is a huge issue. And there's a lot of cleanup that's responsible for that. And it's being created by big bottled water companies and propagated by consumers. And so, you know, what I think will happen is we will start to see some moderate regulation. However, that regulation will only, you know, and maybe we'll see a lot, but that regulation will only really manifest 
when it's met with an alternative that consumers like or they love. And I'll give you an example on this. So years ago, there was a study done, and I believe it was the University of Calgary, and they did a study where they banned single-use bottled water. And they did a pre-post on what happened to plastic bottles uh, prior to the ban and post-ban. And so you want to guess what happened after they banned single-use plastic water bottles and actually what happened to their plastic consumption in uh, University of Calgary? Do you have a guess? <laughs> um, I will say their plastic consumption decreased drastically. <laughs> it, it actually, that's what everyone thought. Everyone thought it would decrease <laughs> drastically because you're like, hey, you banned bottled water, then like, of course it's going to decrease. And it actually stayed the same. And that's what's mind-boggling. And then you say, well, wait. If you actually ban the product, so like when I heard that, my first response was, this is good, this goes back like 10 years. My first response was, oh, everyone's bringing in their own bottles of water and then they're just disposing of it in the university. And yes, of course that was happening a little bit, but, but actually what they found was that people switched from bottled water to bottled soda. So they actually went from one product that was not only really bad for the environment, yeah, to a product that's bad for the environment and not so great for their health because, you know, it's full of caffeine and sugar and, you know, gets, mm -hmm. gets you kind of junked up with junk, junk liquid foods. And so bans often do not work unless it's met with products that consumers like as much as what you're banning or more. And I think this is one of the things that, you know, Tesla is a great example of, you know, a company that took EV and made it cool. And so, yes, it's good for the environment. And yes, you can feel like you're doing something that's responsible. But also, yes, you're driving a pretty badass car that looks looks cool and goes fast and is designed well. Uh, and some people, many people feel it's a superior car, you know, even if it weren't an EV. They just feel like it's a superior car to uh, a petrol-fired car. So that ultimately ends up being the solution we believe, which is, you know, a bit of the flow water focus ends up being, well, how do we get people to fall in love with tap water again? Because for many, many decades, there was this um, uh, kind of public uh, service announcement, and it was really a pretty active PSA around taking back the tap and driving consumers back to tap water again. And that's, that's great. We should all be drinking tap water if you're willing to do that. The problem is that over 80% of Americans don't like or don't trust tap water. So if you're trying to get them to do something that they already don't like or they don't trust, it's very you're literally pushing water uphill to, you know, as you probably know, there are way more water analogies and euphemisms than you ever realized <laughs> now that we're in the water industry. So we probably right. need half a dozen already, but you're literally pushing water uphill and you're trying to get a consumer to do something that they think is inherently either disgusting or dangerous or not safe, or they don't trust it. And so, uh, what we feel is a solution is ultimately create a new platform of water so that you can fall in love with your tap water. And that's what we've done uh, with the flow water systems. But what, you know, the way to solve this ultimately is to get people to go back to the tap and not rely on single use PEP because it's degrading the environment and it's also degrading our body. Aside from the drinking water side of it, you know, do you foresee there being regulations in the way that you know, the industry treats wastewater and stormwater? You know, I, um, that's a really terrific question. I mean, I think what we can, I know enough to know that we are going to see, um, 
I think, a real focus, both from a regulatory perspective, as well as a megatrend towards kind of consumer and business behavior of having kind of social and environmental responsibility in all the things that we do. And so that might, for example, as it relates to wastewater, um, factor into more reclamation, you know, and less and less wasted mm-hmm. water in uh, the process. Beyond that, it's very difficult for me to opine on that simply because, you know, my my real domain of knowledge ends up being uh, largely around drinking water. And then once it gets into kind of the industrials, I think I, I do feel very strongly that the fundamental tenets are the same, which is there is a consumer mega shift that's happening around environmental stewardship and responsibility. And I think that's going to hit, you know, whether it's wastewater or drinking water uh, or industrials, I think it's going to hit all of those to, to, to ultimately the same degree, but it's going to have different timing. And I think drinking water is going to be kind of on the, the early on cusp of that because it's most consumer accessible. You know, it's literally on a shelf at a retailer, at a grocery store, at a drugstore, and consumers have a tremendous amount of, of, of kind of influence in that through their direct buying behavior. Uh, you kind of touched on this before about how, you know, educating consumers, but is there anything that people in the water industry, whether they're in water quality or wastewater, stormwater, can can do to address the microplastics um, issues going on? Or, you know, is it beyond educating the public? Is there something else that could be done? Well, I mean, you know, there's there's all these things that are ultimately desirable, which would be, you know, fine. Um, I mean, I can talk on a couple of different levels on this. One would be using non-PET alternatives. That would be a big improvement. Now, that being said, in fact, we just introduced uh, a flow water aluminum pre-filled on-the-go bottle, right? So if you're at a grocery store and you don't have your refillable bottle with you and there's not a flow water refill station right there, you know, ultimately what you're going to be able to do is you're going to be able to reach for flow water in an aluminum vessel. And, you know, I'm a big fan of non-PET. I, I am a big fan of that when you don't have refillable and you can't fill it in a truck with water source. I'm not a big fan of, you know, just popping 10 cans of water or 10 cartons of water or 10 non-PET uh, things of water every day because it becomes really unnecessary unless you don't have access to clean drinking water that you can trust. And so one is, you know, a movement and a migration to non-PET wherever possible. And that 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 is great intentionality and uh, you know, a lot of this progress ends up happening step by step. I mean, we can't, you know, you, we can't solve the whole thing in one fell swoop. Uh, you know, my, my goal is that we create platforms that end up, end up enabling consumer behavior change that happens, you know, incrementally at first and then exponentially later on down the road. And so I think as leaders that are in, um, uh, you know, a variety of different segments within water, uh, one is we can operate as consumers and behave as consumers and demand change, right? And purchase mm-hmm. products or support businesses. And that stuff ends up have, having a big impact. And I'll give you an example of that. I was meeting with the head of sustainability for a very high-end hotel chain, kind of very uh, boutique national brand that you would know. And I, I, I don't want to say the name on this show, but it would be a name that you'd be very familiar with. And uh, she said to me, and this is, this is, Two years ago, she she said, "Hey, five years ago, this was not even on our radar. Even though it was the right thing to do, it just wasn't really on our radar. But now we have consumers that are literally walking into our hotel rooms, and they are leaving the room, and they're going to the front desk, 
and they're telling the front desk or the, the, the general manager that they're not going to go into the room so long as there's single-use plastic water bottles in there and they're, they're demanding that they be removed. So you oh. think as a consumer, hey, this, this doesn't really make it that big of a difference when I do that or when I say something to a grocery store and say, hey, I really wish you had, you know, like a water mm-hmm. refill station here so I could fill my bottle or whatever it is. The, the fact of the matter is it really does make a difference. I mean, it's like voting, you know, it's like, I mean, you know, regardless of what side the political spectrum everyone is on, we can all agree that every, every vote matters, particularly over the last few election cycles. And it's one of those things where as a consumer, you think it doesn't really matter or as an individual voter, but you recognize certainly in aggregate it does. But particularly when you're putting dollars and cents behind it, those stories of refusing to enter a hotel room because there's single use plastic water bottles in there gets up to the head of sustainability and the executive team at X, Y, and Z hotel company, and then they start solving for it. So that's why I was there. They were solving a problem that had been propagated and kind of raised, not by their market knowledge, because they'd known it. It was because the consumer sentiment was there to demand the change. Uh, so I, you know, I'm a big fan of incremental progress, and I think that you know, if you're recycling a little today, recycle more tomorrow. Um, you know, I think it's very hard for people to make massive changes instantaneously, whether that's diet, exercise, uh, working on kindness, being on time for things or doing good things for the environment. And so we'd all love to flip a switch and have it happen right away. But I think as mm-hmm. business leaders, as well as consumers, really saying, hey, I'm going to I'm going to be intentional about this and mindful about this and incorporate this wherever I can and also evangelize a bit. And those things make massive differences over time. And we're starting to see that mega trend uh, happen. I mean, this is now, you know, many years ago uh, when I, I co-founded Flowwater, I think a lot of people thought, oh, this is like it's a cute little hippie movement in San Francisco. People, you know, want to stop single-use plastic water bottles from entering the environment. And I'm, I'm being self-deprecating to me, you know, because not I did not think that, but I had people <laughs> that were investors along the way that would say like, hey, this is kind of a hippie project, it sounds like. And, you know, not everybody thought that eight, 10 years ago, but some certainly did. Now it's unquestioned. It's, there's no question anymore that this is a clear megatrend where, you know, plastics are the new environmental cigarette and that is not going away. What, what we have to wrestle with is, well, how do we solve this? That's, that's what we have to wrestle with. How do we solve it? Not whether we solve it. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, Rich, I thank you so much. This was great, and I appreciate you sharing all this insight and uh, information with us. Great. Well, thanks. Pleasure to be on the program, Katie. Uh, really enjoyed talking to you, and thank you again. Yeah, thank you. Have a great rest of your day. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rich, for that interview. It was great and full of uh, really wonderful information, so I appreciate your time. Um, and that. That does wrap up our episode today, but before we let you go, we have a little bit of housekeeping we want to share with you. So Lauren, I will let you go first. Thank you. Yeah, small update from me for water quality products from the uh, residential, commercial, and light industrial facet of the industry. Is that, well, not a small update. This is an exciting one. We announced our 2021 industry icon and young professionals. So I just want to celebrate that. It's exciting. I'm so happy to share these stories with you and our audience. So check that out at www.wqpmag.com backslash faces dash industry dash 2021 and celebrate with me. Awesome. Awesome news. The, and 
great industry icon this year. So everyone should definitely check it out. For WWD, I just wanted to plug the WWD Weekly Digest. Uh, that can be found at bit.ly slash WWD Weekly Digest. Uh, the latest interviews here include a discussion with Erica Walker from 120 Water on how to prepare for the lead and copper rule revision. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, an important thing for you to stay up to date on. Um, despite that ever the ever-changing deadlines, we, we still find that there's some really good actionable uh, things in there for you to, to learn from. And then the week after that uh, is an interview with Clarence Whitler. He's the Public Works Director for Pearland, Texas, and I talked to him about the effects that Winter Storm Uri placed on his facilities during that uh, gigantic freeze in Texas and how the power outages affected him. And lastly, I wanted to highlight once again that the Scranton Gillette Communications Water Group, which includes Water Waste Digest and Stormwater Solutions, is bringing a water pavilion to the Utility Expo September 28th to 30th, 2021 at the Kentucky Exposition Center in Louisville, Kentucky. We are looking for your abstracts, so be sure to visit bit.ly slash water pavilion abstracts and make sure to capitalize that W, P, and A in that link. And finally, SWS, WWD, and WQP are partnering once again with Global Waterworks to bring you a new webinar series. The second part of this series will take place at 1 p.m. Central Time on March 30th, and we will discuss approaches to help utilities accelerate resilience. You can register at bit.ly slash GWW Series 2. And don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and really wherever you can get podcasts. You can also reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks for listening.